0: Amen and amen. Wonderful singing, wonderful time of singing, and those are truly great, glorious songs that go directly with the theme of our message today out of God's Word, and uh, I am so delighted uh, to be with you today, and I'm delighted to see you guys. I think we're missing a few families today, so I'm I'm, I'm very uh, encouraged by God's elect in here today. (laughs) <laughs> praise the lord let's ask the lord to bless our time one more time let's go before his throne of grace because any time a sermon is about to be preached we are in a time of need a time of need for speaking a time of need for listening a time of need for applying these things to our lives amen let's pray together one more time heavenly father thank you so much for this day we We praise You, Lord, for uh, the opportunity to come gather together as Your church, to be underneath Your Word again, to be encouraged and built up, and we confess before You, Lord, openly and honestly that we need Your grace. Father, we need Your sanctifying grace. We need Your Spirit to transform us and conform us more and more into the truths of Scripture and into the image of Jesus Christ. Lord, let it not be that in everything that we see in this world, that we have a greater vision of the things around us than we do of Christ. Let it be that supremely and above all else that our eyes are fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who said to us, do not fear man who can kill the body In other words, we don't fear the end of a temporal existence, but we fear Him who is able to kill body and then cast our body and our soul into hell. Yes, Jesus says, fear Him. And so Lord, reorient our fear today. Gather our bearings today. Increase our vision and elevate our vision and grant to us, O Lord, truly a divine, eternal perspective. And take our eyes off of the temporal. The Apostle Paul prayed, Lord, he, he prays, Don't look at the things that are visible because they are temporal. We look at that which is invisible, which is eternal. And so help us, O God, to set our sight on that which is eternal life indeed. And strengthen us, Lord, by this good Word today. Apply it mightily and powerfully to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The study of eschatology is a controversial study. There's no denying that. There's no debating that. But the only thing we don't debate is that eschatology is controversial. And the reason why it's controversial is because it's hard theology. You have some of the greatest minds in the world that have written voluminously massive tomes of theology and particularly on eschatology. And yet, the divisions that have existed for centuries are sharper and greater now more than ever. So that will tell you right off the bat that the study of eschatology is not easy, but it's also not optional. Uh, We don't get to not study eschatology. Matter of fact, even in this book we've already seen, Paul warned us, do not be ignorant about eschatology. And so we have a warning not to neglect the things that we find to be even perplexing but there's different aspects of eschatology and today we want to magnify some really practical aspects of eschatology see sometimes eschatology because it is so rigorous of a study because it is so controversial and because it is at times so divisive that tends to overshadow the practical everyday impact influence effectiveness, and uh, uh, the the sort of influence it should have in our lives, you know, practically the application, in other words, of eschatology, which is a great uh, deficit for our lives if we are not allowing eschatology to have its perfect work in us. And so we want to avail ourselves in that. Now, in this chapter, chapter 5 so far, and even going back previously, but in this chapter, we've looked at... Different aspects of what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. Uh, that's been the emphasis, remember? That's uh, what the apostle has been talking about. That's what he mentions in verse 2. You yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And so we've looked at different aspects relating to that that word there, the day of the Lord, or that phrase, we focused on the terror of the day of the Lord, speaking specifically about the judgment that will accompany the day of the Lord. We looked at the children of the Lord, those who are distinguished from the children of darkness, the children of the devil, as the Bible calls them, and the children of God, the children of light, even as he talks about here, the children of the day. And now we want to focus on the fellowship of the Lord in association with that day. Where do we get that idea? Well, look down to verse 10. It says, speaking of Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. That's what I want to make much of because it's almost as if Paul is saying here that that's really the common denominator. Uh, in any, in any uh, sort of condition that you are in, in any phase of life that you are in, in any state in which you find yourself in, whether you are alive or whether you are dead, to be frank, the truth, the precious truth of Christianity is that we have the Lord's fellowship regardless. That is truly precious. And so, I want to focus on what the nature of the fellowship that we have with Christ, with the Lord, what is all of that about? Uh, What is it based on? What does it look like? What does it result in? That's what our focus is today. And the very first thing I want to focus on is that the fellowship of the Lord is based on the mercy of the Lord. So, the mercy of of the Lord's fellowship. Why do I say mercy? Well, look at verse 9. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot right there to begin with. But I, we begin on the tone of mercy because Paul says here that we have not been Destined for wrath. Now, what wrath is he talking about? Well, if you're a pre tribulational, premillennial, dispensational theologian, then you, what you'll uh, associate this wrath with is that we are not appointed to the wrath of the tribulation period. Ah, I don't, I don't go that way only because of the antithesis. Notice what the, the antithesis is here. It's not that God has not destined us for wrath because we will escape the tribulation. That's not His point. Notice the point is that aside from being, or the opposite of being destined for wrath is that we have salvation through Jesus Christ. So I think the wrath that He's talking about here is final judgment, ultimate judgment, eternal wrath. That's, after all, that's what the day of the Lord is going to usher in. It's going to usher in the wrath of God. Remember, um, based on our exposition, the earlier uh, verses in this chapter, remember that the day of the Lord is going to unleash unparalleled destruction and unimaginable judgment on earth. I think we've lost some of that expectation. I was just looking around like I always do. Uh, at the sign of the times, (laughs) just paying attention. You know, Hawaii has a volcano so deadly and toxic that what they were saying is that it was literally raining like acid rain that you didn't want to get on your body and the ash and the sulfur coming from the volcano was literally like breathing in poison. It was so bad. And if that's not enough, All of a sudden, they got a Category 4 hurricane headed right to the island, right? It's like, hello, if that doesn't wake you up that you're living in a fallen world, I don't know what will. And then, you know, growing up in Southern California, that's, you know, earthquake country there. And so, you know, I kind of pay attention to what's going on. 50% increase in major earthquakes around the ring of fire, that tectonic system around the planet that is prone to having major. A 50% increase in major earthquakes. We're talking 6.0, 7.0, and 8 and 9, everything else. thinking, man, we live in a volatile world. But here's the deal. We know that the wrath of God has sort of these incremental expressions, these incremental evidences. It manifests itself in temporal ways that we can tangibly see right now. And the verse that I'm thinking of is Romans chapter 1, verse 18, where it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then he says for, and then he describes how the wrath of God is coming into the world. And you know, one of the ways that it comes into the world is by the world descending into deeper and deeper depravity. And who can deny that that's where we are today? That's where we are today. Part of that depravity, of course, is the persecution of the church. You know that in every age, in every period, in every generation, all the way back from the beginning of time, really, but in every generation, we have serious persecution and typically persecution on the rise. Globally today, according to the latest missionary reports, Operation World and such, they would say that today persecution is higher right now on planet Earth than ever before in human history. That means that right now there's more persecution than in the Roman Empire under Paul and the early church, the first three centuries of the church under Dalmatian and Nero and other emperors. It's worse now than then. It's worse now than it was during the Dark Ages. The feudal system that arose during that time and what happened during the Dark Ages is that the Word of God, the reason they call it the Dark Ages is that the Word of God was chained to the Catholic pulpit and inevitably leading to the Latin Mass. In other words, and what that led to was in church history what was known as the uh, iconoclastic period, which people had to learn through icons because the Catholic Church had chained the Bible to the Mass and to Latin and would not allow people to read the Bible in their own language. And so inevitably that resulted in and in, in, in worldwide, basically at least in, 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 in as far as the reach of the Catholic Empire, was, was a total illiteracy. People literally could not read, and they, lead, they needed icons, pictures to show them the gospel and things like that. Just incredible. Persecution is worse now than it was under the Reformation period. Under the Reformation period, the Catholic Church slaughtered what some historians would, would go so far as to say they slaughtered up to 20, 30, 40, 50 million people under the under the tyranny of the papacy. And these were people that wanted nothing more than to read the Bible. Read the Bible, a lot of them were pastors who just wanted to preach and have the freedom to read the Bible. And that's why Martin Luther, God by his grace, appointed Martin Luther to uh, nail his 95 thesis on the door of Wittenberg and to protest against the Catholic Church insisting that people should be able to read the Bible in their own language and that resulted in unleashing a, a terrible persecution on the church. The persecution today is worse now than it's ever been. And if you know anything about what's going on around the Muslim world, you understand that. Do you know anything about what's going on in in, in places like the Congo, and places like Sudan? Unspeakable atrocities. I mean, I spent two months in Uganda ministering to a uh, what at that time was about a million Sudanese who had migrated down from Sudan down to Uganda. And every single person that you talked to in these camps where we were at, they all had the same story. They all had the same story that that the Muslim radicals, they captured their town, they killed their parents. Some, some people were forced to kill their own family members uh, some people were taken into slavery. I met a man that was not only taken into slavery, but taken in slavery and escaped. And he walked from Ethiopia down to um, down to Uganda um, and uh, barefoot, and had to drink his own urine to survive. I tell you, I sat in the presence of a 12-year-old little boy who told me his story about how the Muslims forced him to shoot his parents and I was in a room with about 10, 15 men, and that little 12-year-old boy was the only one that wasn't sobbing. Persecution is so bad right now. We do not If we don't have eyes to see this, if you're not getting the voice of the martyrs, if you're not getting something from Operation World, if you're not getting something from some missionary society somewhere to make you, to wake you up that this is happening all over the world, and you're going to you're going to really be in Lala. We're, we're going to be in Disneyland. We're not going to really be tuned in to what. See, God sees everything globally. God doesn't just focus on little American Christianity <laughs> with our iPads and, you know. I was in a Christian bookstore the other day and I counted. I went seven aisles, seven uh, massive aisles, massive bookcases. I went seven. One, two, three, four. The theology section was in the back, and it was half a shelf. Everything else was Christian practicality, Christian yoga, Christian dieting, Christian exercising, Christian parenting, Christian fashion, Christian teenagers, Christian... I'm like, what has happened to us? I have more theology books in my, my own private book, uh, uh, my own library, than the whole bookstore has. I don't say that bragging. I say that to our shame. What has happened to us? Need I go on? We live in a world that God has consigned to wrath. And it's all over. Yeah, it's in the hurricanes. Yes, it's in the earthquakes, tornadoes. We're in Texas. It's in the diseases we see around, it's in the decadence of our culture. That is descending faster and faster and faster. Changes your perspective as a parent, doesn't it? I look around in the culture. There was a time before we had Eden. I look around at the culture and I see how crazy and insane it's getting. I'm just like, as if that's grief. And then I look down at my daughter and think, i got to raise her in this world. It's sobering. It's just sobering. And it just reminds me why the gospel is deadly serious. Why we have to start training that young child to start discerning between good and evil at at the earliest age possible. Well, our salvation, the mercy that we get from the Lord, didn't begin in time and space. It did not begin at the crucifixion of Jesus. It did not begin at the point of your conversion God decreed to have mercy on you. In other words, when the Apostle Paul says, God has not destined us for wrath, but infinite mercy for obtaining salvation, you could use the word destined again, but he destined us to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the dynamic. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians. Just to see that the sovereignty of God is not controversial in a sense for, for these Thessalonians like it is for today. You can't escape the sovereignty of God. You can't go without the sovereignty of God. You can't ignore the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. It's in His Word. I'm, I'm sure I'm in a room that you guys can relate to my testimony. But when I came into the doctrines of grace... Meaning, I embraced the doctrine of God's sovereignty. I started looking at my Bible and, like, whoop, well, there it is again. Whoop, well, there it is again. Whoop, well, there, well, there it is again. Like, where was I the whole time before this? <laughs> you just start seeing it everywhere, 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 everywhere. You know, and I went to a church where you were not allowed to talk about the sovereignty of God. It was like, keep it down. You had to hide your Piper book, you know? <laughs> you had to walk around and hide your Reform literature. But you can't escape it because it's biblical. It's biblical. It's a controversial, yes, it'll challenge you to the very core of your being to assess what your worldview is really made up of. Do you have a man centered worldview? In other words, everything exists for you, you are the measure of all things. Or do you have a God centered worldview? Does the world exist for God, as he says, for his glory? He created everything for his glory. Look at what it says here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning verse 13. That's why I say this is not a surprise to hear Paul talking about predestination, as it were, the sovereign decrees of God. It's no surprise to them. Paul has been teaching them this. And he continued to teach them this. He says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning. First, salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that He called you. Another sovereign word, effectually calling us through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were not destined for wrath. We were destined for glory. It's pure mercy. What does the sovereign grace of God do to a sinner who has been forgiven by the grace of God? It humbles you to the dust. It humbles you to the core of your being. Like, like Job who put his hand over his mouth and say, Oh Lord, I'd rather prostrate myself in the dust than to reply back to you. It should do that. It should have that effect on us, knowing that if it's not for God's grace, if it's not for God's sovereign, eternal mercy upon our lives through Jesus Christ, as the psalmist declares, Lord, if you were to mark iniquity, who can stand? Nobody. Nobody can stand. That's the thing, is that sin will lay waste to all of us. What we have we have by the mercy and the grace of God. Paul says in Corinthians, what you are, you are by God's mercy and grace. That's it. You can not get it any other way. It's based on His grace. And that's why this passage is all about comfort. Encourage. Build each other up. Based on these things. Knowing, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you are not destined for wrath is telling us with no uncertain terms that what we're mercifully forgiven for and and, and mercifully removed from is an eternity in hell. That doctrine that is not popular anymore, that doctrine that many pastors will not preach on anymore, that doctrine that most churches will not tolerate anymore. Because people want God in their image. They don't want the God of the Bible. It's that simple. This leads us to the next thing. And that is the promise of God's fellowship. The mercy of God's fellowship is that we don't get wrath, we get salvation. And the promise of God's fellowship is that we get union with Christ through salvation. As a matter of fact, there are three things that I want to emphasize here in terms of. Christ. Because look at the language with me. This is a small little portion of text so we can get really, really deep and really precise. Because he says we're not destined for wrath. And then comes a strong contrast. What they call a strong adversative because he says, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the prepositions in this context are everything. Through for those little words make up the meat and the bones, the the, the 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 real essence of the text of what Paul is arguing for. If you don't have a if you don't have an eye to see this, right, you kind of miss the glory of it all. Because what I'm telling you is that the word for the whole gospel is in that word for. You'll see. I'll prove it to you. I, I promise. What this is stressing is that this salvation comes through Jesus Christ, which means that everything that we are about to receive that is good from God comes through a mediator. And so Christ, as our mediator, grants us salvation so that He becomes the agent of salvation. He provides us with atonement so that we have forgiveness of sin. And He secures for us fellowship so number 1 those are three subpoints salvation atonement fellowship number 1 jesus is the agent of salvation for us turn with me in your bibles to titus chapter 3 titus chapter 3 because it suggests that by escaping the wrath of god when once we lived as people that only deserve the wrath of god salvation Is salvation from our sin, from our misery, from the judgment of God that we justly deserved. Uh, Let me turn there with you because I don't think I actually included the verse I wanted. Believe it or not. Oh, yes. Titus 3, beginning in verse 3. We were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Spending our life in malice, envy, hateful, and hating one another. In other words, we justly deserved the wrath that Paul says we are not destined for. Hallelujah. But... When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. That's so glorious right there. He saved us. He delivers us from the wrath of God. He saves us. He provides a way of escape because this is the way that God is going to glorify Himself in the salvation of sinners. The elect are thus liberated through Christ. The agent of salvation so that in the end what will happen is that we will have an elect innumerable company of elect people who will be saved by the blood of Jesus, the Lamb, Revelation chapter 5, who was slain. And because He was slain and because He purchased us by His blood, we will sing and we will render eternal worship to God. See, what is God doing all this for? He's not saving us, brothers and sisters, just simply so that we will be forgiven. He's not saving us just simply so that we will not go to hell. He's not saving us just simply so that we will go to heaven and that we will, you know, uh, uh, rise again from the dead. Those are all great, glorious things, but he saves us so that we will glorify him, glorify him. See, what God is after is glory. And for many, many years, I had a problem with that. Because I was taught, don't seek glory for yourself. right? That's extremely selfish and narcissistic. And who seeks glory for themselves? Well, that's like telling the sun, don't shine. The sun really can't help it. It's the sun. It's bright, it's hot. It's glowing with 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 glory. That's who God is. He is brighter than the sun. Literally, Revelation chapter 22. He is brighter than the sun. You don't need any sun. You don't need moon. You don't need stars. When you get to heaven, God and the Lamb will illuminate everything. Why? Because He is the all-glorious One. If God were not to do everything for His glory, God would be an idolater. Because there's no other God. And there's no other being that deserves glory than God. And so God cannot do everything in the universe for your glory, as special as you think you are. You're not that special. You're not that glorious. Oh, you're made in the image of God and you have infinite value as a creature in the image of God. But God alone deserves infinite glory. And this is the way that God has chosen to glorify Himself. To the mass of humanity, God mercifully... Decided, decreed to save a people for himself. And our, I think our immediate human, fallen, re- rationalistic reaction is to say, why doesn't he choose everybody? And that's where we have to say, who are you? Who are you, O man, to question God? There comes a point, as Calvin said, where hell is the place for those who are overly curious. And what he was talking about in the context is if we try to peer too deep into the decrees of God, we will get ourselves in dangerous terrain. Because we want knowledge we can't have, we want knowledge we can't handle. I hate to think of that movie, but you can't handle the truth. It's true. Certain amounts of knowledge, not good for us, or else God would have revealed it to us. Certain things are secret. They're unto the Lord, Deuteronomy 9, no, Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord. So some things are are things that we will never know. I don't Even in eternity, I don't believe we will know everything. Of course not. When we go to heaven and when we enter eternity, we do not become omniscient. Uh, you can make a case that in eternity your knowledge will be eternally increasing and growing, but we will never achieve divine knowledge. He's not just... The agent of salvation, generally. He's also the one who provides atonement, specifically. Because look at what it says obtaining salvation, here it is, through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you mean by through? Because he died, here's another preposition, for us. That's why. Turn with me in your Bibles to two passages of Scripture. Galatians chapter 2 and Philippians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 2 stresses the fact that atonement is everything. That the grace of God is all that we need. And that what Jesus did in laying down His life for His people is all that we need. And that changes everything. Paul understood this. He says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. You could say, in the Son of God. We say, in Him and for Him. Who loved me and gave Himself up for me. That language of substitution. I do not nullify the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, we do not nullify the grace of God. We have no other foundation. There is no other basis For if righteousness, what everyone's after. Right? If righteousness, that's what everyone is after. And that's what everyone needs. All the religions of the world are trying to, on the treadmill of works, righteousness, they are attempting to earn a certain stature before God if you just do a certain amount of good deeds, if you just pray a certain amount of prayers, if you just avail yourself to a certain amount of spirituality and spiritual talk and spiritual involvement, then perhaps you would have climbed up the rung of righteousness enough that God will deem you acceptable. And Paul is saying, rubbish. There is no rung that you can climb in yourself. There is no ladder. There is no progress. There is no merit in you. And therefore, if you nullify the grace of God, you're in big trouble because righteousness does not come from the law. In other words, righteousness doesn't come from performance. Christian kids, Christian homeschooled kids, Christian kids in Christian schools, Christian kids and Christian churches are trapped in this mentality. Trust me. You know, I've been going through our church, and I've been meeting with the children in our church one-on-one. Last week I met with a young boy that told me, he goes to bed every night terrified of death and hell. And you know what my counsel to him was? My counsel to him in the eyes of the world would be, would be probably child abuse. So strike, you know, better mute the recorder here for a second. <laughs> no, I'd gladly go to jail for something like this. I told him, I'm glad that you're afraid. I'm encouraged that you fear God and that you fear death and that you fear hell. I would be terrified if you didn't. Because it shows me that you're in this church, you're hearing all this Christian stuff, you're hearing all these Christian people, and it's not affecting you. And you know what he told me? Oh, man, I tell you guys, don't underestimate your kids. And vice versa, don't underestimate the young people in this church. You know what this young child told me? I want to repent of my sin, but I can't. I don't know what's wrong with me. The conversation I was having with him was incredibly deep. I was having this incredible theological conversation with a, I think, a seven, eight year old. Incredible. I thought, man. With tears in my eyes, I pleaded with this boy to repent and trust in Jesus as the only hope for his salvation. And that's what we need to be doing, brothers and sisters, not just, man. What did I tell you? Okay, Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, who was exactly where that little boy was at, came to the realization that his own works is nothing. Whatever things were gained to me, verse 7, those things I count as loss for the sake of Christ. You see... A person does not genuinely come into the kingdom of God until first they acknowledge their sin and their misery. Their misery means you understand the spiritual bankruptcy that you really have. I remember being 19 years old and finally, by the grace of God, coming to the realization that I was in a truly sinful, miserable condition. Even though I was having fun, all this fun with my friends and going to parties and doing all this stuff, When finally, like the prodigal son, it says in the text, if you ever read that, it says in the text, in the Greek text, it says, he came to himself. It's like I finally woke up, right? (laughs) No wonder the Bible talks about regeneration in terms of being awake. Because for the first time in my life, somehow by the grace, well, I know how, I'm, 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 You know I'm joking there because I actually know how, theologically. But you know what I mean? Practically speaking, for the first time in my life, somehow all the scales came off. I saw the veneer for what it was. I saw the vanity of the world. I saw the folly of my ways. I saw the fact that time is ticking. No one's helping me. No one has answers for me. I tried everything. I went here. I went there. I've done this. I've done that. Money's not satisfying, party's not satisfying, drugs are not satisfying, nothing is satisfying me. And at the end of however long I'd live up to that point, I looked over at my life and I thought, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What is this world about? And so, we pray that this will take place in every heart. We will see everything as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count everything as lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. This is the way it works, guys. Real simple. In eternity, you're thinking eternally minded. It doesn't matter what you have to lose. It's a phrase that we use in my house when we go through some trial. Whatever i got to go through. <laughs> because what can you do? The doctors told you what, what's wrong. They also told you they can't do anything about it. Now what? what are you going to do, panic? Well, probably, if you're human. <laughs> but if we take a step back and breathe, we realize everything is lost anyway. We think about it. What we come to the conclusion is that whatever I have to go through in this world It's meaningless in light of eternity. It really is. Does this happen when you get older? (laughs) Because the older I get, the more real eternity is seeming. And um, Pastor Lynn and I were talking about this before service, but the world is getting really crazy right now in many, many ways. I don't want to come up here like, you know, Hal Lindsey or anything, but the world is getting frightening right now. What's going on? If you have eyes to see and ears to hear what's going on, whatever. Take your pick, man. Whatever's going on politically, whatever's going on internationally, whatever's going on globally, whatever's going on with natural disasters, whatever's going on with diseases that are springing up all over the place, you know, I pay attention to that stuff. Whatever's going on with technology. I just read an article on the emergence of 5G technology, technology. And, you know, you techies in the, in the crowd, you guys know this better than I do, but I read this article, it intrigued me because it said that 5G technology is for driver, driverless vehicles. That's really what's behind the push to bring 5G technology about because they want to remove us from driving our own vehicles. They want to provide us, you know, these beautiful, shiny, technological cars, you know, we're all going to be driving around, we're just going to punch it in the dashboard like the Jetsons, you know, take me here. You know what I mean? But you need 5G technology to make that work. Oh, we'll all be crashing into each other like bumper carts. (laughs) But that's what's... I mean, okay, so let's say we don't know what God is going to allow us to see, but I just look at the forecast and I don't like what I see. I'm sorry, I want to drive my car. I trust myself more than a robot, which mathematically you could probably give me statistics that that's not good, (laughs) but I don't care. I don't want a robot driving me around. The world is just becoming increasingly mad. A mad, mad world. (laughs) Okay, let's look at the third thing here. Christ not only provides the atonement that we need, He also secures fellowship. And this is the highest point. Look back at the text with me in Thessalonians. He says this. He died for us. And then He gives us the purpose clause. Ready? So that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Now verse 9 and verse 11 has some really interesting grammatical constructions that I was sitting there scratching my head and I thinking, how am I going to bring this out with, without diving too deep into the grammar, okay? But the grammar is everything here. If you miss the grammar here, you miss just the riches of what Paul is trying to emphasize here. I could see Paul sitting there with a pen in hand writing this and thinking thinking in Greek, how, how can I word it? And he worded it exactly the way he needed to word it in order to get the meaning across. You understand? So this is what he's saying. When you look at your English Bibles, this is what my Bible says this. He died for us. Whether we're awake or asleep, that means either alive or dead, right? And then he says, we will live together with Him. Now, the word together is the key. Because what does the word together mean? Together with Christ? No. No. He uses a, he uses a Greek adverb here, hama, to stress the unity of God's people distinguishing it from the next prepositional phrase, with Him. Interesting. So what he's saying is exactly what he's been teaching in the context, and that is that first God is going to gather us together. So when it says together, it means first the gathering of the people of God, and then corporately, collectively, as a church, as a one people of God throughout all ages, after He has gathered us together, we will be with Him. Does it make sense? That's what he's saying. Matter of fact, that's what he taught. Go back to chapter 4, verse 16. Remember, he's just repeating what he has already taught us. Beginning of verse 16, For the Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together see that with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so we shall always be with the lord so there you go same dynamic so what he's saying here is that god is going to rapture us together bring old and new testament believers together a, a, a dead saints living saints If we are blessed to be alive during the time of the parousia, the second coming of Christ, we will not join Christ until we first join one another. We're joined as one body to Christ. And my suspicion is is that all of that, you don't want to necessarily think about it chronologically, but then again you do. Because before we go to the Lord, remember the dead in Christ will rise first. So it's just an amazing way of... The Bible stressing the fact that Jesus will secure for us fellowship. We will be one people of God. And when it uses this kind of language of togetherness, when he speaks of this, what he's saying is that even more, follow me here, don't tune out, this is very important, even more than the forensic dimensions of the gospel. You guys all with me? Even more than when I say forensic, I mean when God says not guilty. That's good news, right? Not guilty. Justified. Which is all what we want. That's what we want. That's what we need. We need to go from sinners guilty to saints not guilty, right? But the forensic level, the legal language of the Bible is not the deepest you know what's the deepest? It is the covenantal level, brothers and sisters. It is the covenantal level because that is what fellowship with God is all about. Jesus told His disciples, No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Where does the language of friendship come from in the Bible? You know where it comes from? Abraham. Abraham was called the friend of God because he was in covenant with God. Because he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he became God's friend. Psalm 25 verse 14. This is a passage that you may want to remember. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear Him and He will make them know His covenant. Which means He will bind us together with Him. He will put us in covenant fellowship with Himself. And now we know how He's going to do it. All through Christ. Alright, let's... You know, this this passage of Scripture is really designed... Paul wrote this almost as if he knew a pastor was about to preach this. (laughs) Because these are such neatly... uh, Packaged uh, sermon. So, um, so this is what the last point is. We go from, uh, you know, the mercy of his fellowship. We go from the promise of his fellowship to the ability of his fellowship. And that's in verse 11. Therefore, you always want to know why is therefore, therefore, right? Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. Just as you also are doing. (sighs) Again, the Apostle Paul uses some very unique language to bring this point across. Follow with me in the text. When he says, therefore encourage one another, that word one another is the Greek word aleathus. One another. One Greek word. Okay? Now if you have an NASB... That English phrase is repeated again erroneously. It says, and build up one another. Um, that's what it means, but that's not what it says. It literally says, build up one to one. He doesn't use alaleithus again. He says, heis ton henna. Totally different. Why? You know why? This is where, if you're a member of our church, you've got to really tune in here for a second. Because what Paul is saying is that each individual, he went down to the individual level, one to one. Incredible that Paul would do this. I love this. this is, man, this is like a pastor, you know, softball for a pastor. Because this is where I lay it on thick. Say, what are you doing In your duty as a member, one-to-one. In other words, what Paul is saying by going down to that precision, what he's saying is no one's in the shadows. No one falls through the cracks. Nobody in the church is a spectator sitting back with arms folded and just watching everybody else do the work and put in the sweat and the time, and the energy, and the effort to participate. One to one. So how would you like it if today in the church we went one to one? (laughs) If I went one by one. And asking you, uh, how are you doing with your personal commitment to encourage and to build up the body of Christ? How are you encouraging and building up the body of Christ? No, 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 no. You can't point to so and so and you can't point. Remember, Paul said one to one. So each one, each individual member, how are you doing? Convicted yet? I was. I was. Don't think that because I'm the pastor, this is just all automatic for me. Guys, i got news for you. Pastors have ways to elude fellowship and get away from their people. You don't know that yet? Oh yeah, we can hide out in our office, hide out in our library. Especially you've got lots of books, you've got a good excuse to be in your library all the time, right? Some of the most reclusive people are no, are pastors. They don't like to be in conversations with people. They want to get out of conversations as fast as possible. It freaks them out. It's the most hilarious thing I've ever seen. <laughs> Matter of fact, when Trish and I first moved to Texas, we're going to churches and meeting different churches and meeting different... I can't tell you how weird some of these pastors were. Hey, how you doing? What, oh, what, 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 what? Hey, hello. <laughs> it's like they're all freaked out. I mean, I get I sympathize, man. But it's like, you know, people ministry is difficult for people. I understand that. And so don't, don't, do not hear that, you know, I'm not understanding the challenges interpersonal skills, social skills. Some people just don't do good in big groups. Some people don't do good in intimate conversations. Some people just like to be locked away all day in their room and do nothing. But what I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, is that that's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. And if you are hiding in the shadows, falling through the cracks, avoiding fellowship, avoiding the body, avoiding the not chipping in, not building up, not encouraging, you are out of God's will. That is not God's will for you as a Christian or as a member of a biblical church. And sadly, don't you lament with me, brothers and sisters, that sadly today in evangelicalism, it has become so increasingly easy to do that. Mega churches just to be a shadow on the wall. Nobody knows your name. Nobody knows what you're up to. Nobody knows what's going on in your life. Nobody knows anything about what's going on with you. It's so easy to just creep in the back and creep out. Let it not be said of us. Let it not be said of us. Father, I can do no more than just to illustrate what the text of Scripture said. What You have inspired by Your good Spirit. Your Spirit is good. And He inspired a good Word. And all Scripture is profitable for correction and reproof and instruction and righteousness. And Lord, we thank You that we have it. Thank You that we have such a reliable guide that we can turn to these things and say, Oh God, even if it makes us uncomfortable, You wrote this for our joy. You wrote this for our good. And so Lord, we repent today. And Lord, for those that are hardening themselves today, would you, as a merciful, loving Father, discipline those that you love? Bring them into the fold. Give them a higher view of the body so that participation is not a drudgery. It is a joy because you shed your blood for the church. These are blood-bought people. Help us not to view ourselves as anything less. Thank You for Your mercy. Father, we thank You that we are not destined for wrath. We thank You, Lord, gratefully thanking You because we know, Lord, there is no difference between me and my neighbor, me and the person next to me. It is only by Your grace that I am in Christ. And so we plead with You, God. Save those that we love and know and care about. Have mercy on a wicked and perverse generation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.